Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Adventure Audio Podcast. In this episode, we really are doing a recap and uh, sort of a highlights show of 2020. So we reach, we cheat a little bit and reach farther back into 2019 because we started the podcast in very late 2019, and we wanted to include those guests too uh, because we didn't do a highlight show in that year. Um, so Merry Christmas, everybody. Happy holidays. We hope that you're all taking care of yourselves and uh, your families and others and thank you again for spending your valuable time with us on the show we really really appreciate it and we appreciate all of the awesome guests that we have so we're just going to bring you some of our favorite parts of some of the conversations that we were uh, honored to have this year i guess um what we're doing is um a a recap of some what we consider to be highlights from 2020 uh, from the show. And to begin with, we just want to say thank you to everybody who has spent their valuable time with us listening uh, and to all of the amazing people who spent some time with us uh, telling us their stories on the podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure to do and I've had a ton of fun with it. Yeah, big thank you to everyone. And, you know, a big thank you to you, Pete. This was all your idea way back when. And um, yeah, it's been, man, it's been a lot of fun. I, uh, I look forward to in- interviewing somebody each week and, you know, doing a little research on them. And, uh, yeah, it's just been a real pleasure talking with all these incredible people. And, um, you know, yeah, it's been super you. cool and we're going to keep thank it going. You. Yeah, no, thank you for doing it with me. It's been an awesome journey and I feel like we're really just kind of getting going. We've kind of found some rhythm and we're going to keep at it. Oh yeah, it's been a, a a steep learning curve for us, and but it's been part of the fun. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, we've come a long way. So <laughs> yeah, yeah a, a big thank you to everybody who spent time with us in in any way, and we appreciate you helping us grow the podcast. Oh yeah. So our very first podcast guest was Sarah Hornby of Bike Pack Canada. Oh man, she was great. What a great, what a awesome you know first guest to have on our podcast. Totally. Yeah, I'm. Honored to call her a friend. Uh, yeah. We had, when did we last see Sarah in person? We had dinner with her in Banff in 2019, in That's June, right. I guess. Yeah. yeah. Um, but she she set out in, in 2019 to complete all of the bike packing routes that were designed by her late husband, Ryan Corey, who was kind of a legend in the bike packing community and founded Bike Pack Canada. And, and Sarah has continued on that legacy in a really, really cool way. And tell us, but you, you had a busy summer. It looks I like. have. Yeah, it's been a super busy year. I know everyone says that. I and hate you've been saying doing, it. Yeah, you've been doing a lot of videos, right? For salsa? Is that yeah, right? Yeah. So, um, Can you tell us about that? Yeah, it was probably about a year ago now that I think about it. I had just come back from um, a month in France. I was doing a hike across the Alps and, you know, like most adventure or goal oriented people. I was kind of like, okay, well, what do I want to do next year? And I'd spent all this time hiking and thinking like, okay, if I'm going to run this bike pack Canada thing, you know, I kind of got to actually do a little bit more bike packing. <laughs> ride some bikes. Yeah. Let's ride some bikes. So um, prior to Ryan's death, he'd been working on a guidebook called bike packing in the Canadian Rockies. And that outlined 10 routes in Alberta and BC 
uh, multi-day routes. So he scouted them all and had worked on it for a couple of years, really right up until he was sick and then was fine tuning the book even while he was sick. Um, so I had this idea to ride the roots. Um, actually it was kind of a friend who originally suggested it and then kind of turned into, Oh, okay, I guess I'm doing this. I'm going to ride all the roots in 2019. Um, so that was the goal. And I mentioned it to a friend of mine who happens to be a photographer and filmmaker. And from there it kind of took off into this bigger project. Um, so with the support of Salsa, we've got uh, two great filmmakers working, um, kind of been following me around all summer <laughs> while I've been riding these routes and they're going to be putting together a short film um, in the coming months. So super excited to see that. It's That's just so a really neat way to capture what's been like an awesome year of riding bikes. I didn't even know that that I didn't even know that this was culminating in a film. That's really yeah. awesome. Yeah, so there will be one for Travel Alberta as well, I believe. So two different cuts, I guess, of the same or similar story. And um, yeah, so... Do you, do you have a favorite route and can you talk about it? Before? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> yeah, or a, so... Or a favorite story on one of these trips. Oh, favorite story. Well, Jeez. Let's have a, one, one of both. Okay. One of your favorite routes. <laughs> yeah. There's so many. Um, so yeah, like I said, there's 10 routes. I've done yeah. eight of them. Two of them are going to have to unfortunately wait to next year just uh, because we've got lots of snow and it got cold and wintry sooner than expected. But um, of the ones I've done, my favorite was when we did in September. Um, so it was through the C Castle Provincial Park and Wildlands Area and Waterton Lakes National Park. Um, and I just, it was one of those routes that just kind of had all the ingredients that came together kind of perfectly for me, for my kind of adventure. Like there was a good challenge with it, not too epic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, was it a point to point or a loop? This one was supposed to be a loop actually, but with um, the wildfires of 2017 and 2018, there was a section of backcountry trail that was um, just destroyed and um, we weren't able to get back into that area. So we made it a point to point, just kind of omitting that section. Okay. Yeah, so I think we did it over, it was just a two night trip, like fairly short, but it just packed in like a perfect blend of different scenery areas I'd never been, like parks that are a lot less traveled than you know, the really big popular areas out here in Alberta and BC and had some good friends along the way and good weather. It was just, yeah, really awesome ride. Um, they've all been great, but that one just kind of ticked all the boxes, okay. I think. Yeah. 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 So oh. a favorite story. Yeah. yeah. I'm looking right now. I have a whiteboard, like with all of the roots. Um written down I'm just trying to think it's funny because some of my favorite stories <laughs> at the time and I'm sure you guys can relate probably weren't the most fun <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah totally <laughs> yeah totally. so we we had one in early <laughs> June it was we called it the Beaverfoot, just the area that it was or Ryan called it Beaverfoot, I should say yeah and um it started and ended in golden bc and actually as a whole it was an amazing route like the gravel which is like my favorite i like riding gravel 
just gorgeous areas. But there was this one section of trail, backcountry trail. We had a really hard time finding it to begin with. Um, there was like a big swollen water course that kind of prevented us from getting where we needed to go. And we ended up bushwhacking for hours trying to find our way through. And we finally did. And we got on this trail and I have never seen so many trees down in my life. And it just kept going and going. Um, You know, at the time it wasn't, as I say it, it doesn't sound fun, but just the memory of it kind of got to a point where we'd gone so far on this tree and heaved our bikes over so many, um, like so much deadfall that we just didn't want to turn around. It's like, well, we got to keep going. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Okay, but you've got a loaded bike. Yeah, we've got loaded bikes. So it's just super awkward lifting big, yeah. heavy bikes over trees, and you're in the middle of nowhere. Um, How many trees do you think you went over that one day? It was usually like multiple trees at once, like in this yeah. oh, big really, tangle really. of massive logs. I We were trying to guess, like the piles, I would say maybe like 50 large piles of yeah. trees <laughs> yeah and your bike's 100 pounds or right something like that i uh, hope it's not that heavy but it sure <laughs> feels that heavy sometimes yeah. right 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 <laughs> but um it, yeah it was just it kept going on i think we covered like it took us five hours to get through like 15 kilometers of this trail oh, maybe man. longer and yeah I don't know. It, at the time, it was one of those things where you're like, what the heck am I doing? This is like, <laughs> is this even fun? But uh, it's one of those stories now that we look back on and kind of laugh. And uh, Our second ever podcast guest was Christopher McDougall. Um, we were probably punching a little above our weight class at that point <laughs> uh, because Chris is a big deal to me. He wrote the, oh, yeah. the amazing book, Born to Run. Uh, Natural Born Heroes, which was also a really remarkable book, and most recently, Running with Sherman, which he was able to share with us a little bit about, which sounds like too crazy of a story. He rescues this donkey and uh, turns him into like an ultra running donkey. Yeah. <laughs> sounds yeah, crazy real, to say. Yeah, real pleasure to have him on. I think at first he's like, who are these two fruitcakes? But um, yeah, it was um, a lot of fun and really s- some great stories. Yeah, yeah. It was a very fun chat with Chris, and we're going to share with you some highlights of that um yeah uh you know i I think this is something that really deserves more examination i think there's a period maybe right around the 70s where i feel like sports changed from something that was fun and recreational into something that was marketed by fear and you can almost remember like what it was, the ABC Wire World of yep. Sports? Oh, yeah. Remember the, you know, the thrill of victory, the agony of defeat? And you saw all those images of like ski jumpers yeah. like crashing, right? And I feel like right around that time, we started to think of sports as something that was really dangerous. Like that was when Rocky came out too. Like if you're a boxer, you're going to get your face punched in. You know, if you're a skier, you're going to wreck and crash. And, you know, if you're a runner, you're going to get hurt. You better buy the right shoes. And suddenly, I don't know, man, maybe it's my, maybe it's my own imagination, but I feel like when I was growing up as, as a kid in the early 60s, and early 70s, you know, sports was just what you did. Everyone played a game. You ran around. It wasn't dangerous. It was fun. Then all of a sudden, I just kept feeling like we're seeing image after image of people getting hurt. And you're always told you better buy this or you're going to get hurt. 
You better do it right or you're going to get hurt. And I think it really started to change our self-perception of humans as being kind of fragile, you know, kind of fragile and weak as opposed to kind of robust and indestructible. And to me, like that's that's the note that Born to Run was hitting was that, you know, dude, we're animals like every other animal. You know, we're no weaker than any like cheetah or any like mountain lion. We're, we're, as, t- we're as strong as they are. You just got to tap back into it. Totally. And we have different set of strengths, right? We're actually, as a running animal, we're actually quite slow, yet we're built to be able to go all day, right? So that's something that always really stuck with me. Um, that and the, at some point in that book, there's the exploration of where you peak as an endurance athlete, but how long it takes for that to level back off, right? And it's something like 63 years old, but it takes you to, to be equivalent of what you were at when you were like 18, which is really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of those, those strands. I think that I, the dominant note had to do with what we're good at as animals. You know, if you look, if you watch TV on a Sunday, what you're going to see is sports invented by dudes for dudes to watch other dudes do while we're watch, laying on a sofa. You know, yeah. <laughs> all, all Sunday afternoon is soccer, football, basketball, right? And these are all power sports. They're all about bulk and testosterone. But, you know, these, these are games that dudes invented for themselves. They're not, they're not activities that humans are naturally really good at compared to other animals. So, you know, compared to other species, we're not very fast. We're not very strong. You know, you can put Dwayne Johnson in a cage with a gorilla and only the gorilla is coming back out again. You know, like we're not strong at all compared to other animals. We're not fast. We can't swim very well. We can't fly. But when it comes to endurance, when it comes to um, cooperation and adaptation, those three things, we kick ass. So you look at Alex Honnold. You work his way up um, a sheer rock wall. That's endurance. It's adaptability. It's cooperation. You know, he's learning from other, what other people have done. He's collaborating. He's brainstorming. You know, Honnold didn't do that himself. He collaborated with lots of people who went before him. So in those three aspects, endurance, cooperation, and adaptability, humans dominate. We're the very best. And where those three things come together are in things like distance running, um, distance swimming, rock climbing, parkour. These are the activities that humans are good at, and they're good at it for a really long time. Like you can keep going and going into your sixties and still be pretty right. damn good. And you explore parkour and the concepts behind that, and that sort of elasticity and stuff in uh, natural born heroes, right? Yeah, and that became like the, the natural outgrowth. You know, I had looked at distance running and born to run. And then I thought, yeah, it'd be kind of cool to widen the focus a little bit and see where other activities fall under this umbrella. Uh, Tyler, I'm kind of wondering about cycling. You know, is there a huge disparity between men and women uh, in the upper ranks of cycling? I mean, have they have women bridged the gap at all, or is it still pretty much um, male dominated? Uh, no, 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 no. they have a chance. a chance, and I think it's a lot like running. Like the longer the distance, the 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 closer they become. Um, the the the, big, the uh, less of a less of a dominance the men have. I think in some of the shorter distances, men are typically a bit stronger. Um, but then, as if, as the longer the endurance, the uh, the closer it gets. Yeah, which is really cool to see. It's super. Cool I, was, see. I was really I was yeah. I was really hoping that was your answer. I was really hoping that was your answer because that's what I 
assumed, but I, but I didn't really know. And that is perfectly uh, in fitting with the model. You know, the shorter distances, which is yeah. explosive power and bulk, dudes, dudes would prevail. But even the longer distances, I'm happy to hear that even in cycling, it seems like it's, yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's, true. it's re- really cool. Really cool to see. As, as we're seeing this explosion of ultra distance type events, whether they're single or multi-day or multi-multi-multi-day, definitely there's a there's that gap is really shrinking between genders and in some cases women are outright winning events like i think uh courtney doelter won the the race across utah and she won by like eight hours which is crazy oh and and you know what it's now it's becoming epidemic so have you guys heard about uh, the big bag big big backyard ultra marathon what's that it is the sickest thing that's ever been created by a twisted mind. It is a, it's a race. It is a uh, four mile loop. Uh, and it's literally in a guy's like backyard. So it's like, he's got access to some kind of ranch property. It's a four mile loop and you have to w- run one loop an hour. And that's all you got to do. So you go out there, you run your four miles. Let's say you're banging out 10 minutes a mile. You're done in 40 minutes. You rest 20 minutes. And you go out and do it again. Oh, this again, is the guy. And who... again, and you keep going. Wow. This is the guy who started uh, Barclays, right? Is this Lazarus? Exactly. Yeah. Lazarus Lake. Yeah. So, yeah, once, as if, as if, as if uh, Barclay wasn't sick enough, this guy ups the scales. So he creates big backyard. And the hideous thing about it is, you don't know what the finish line is. You don't know if you're going to be running for 20 hours, 40 hours, 60 hours. So uh, according to Walter finished second last year. And then this year, her, her good friend, Maggie Guterl, uh finished first. And I, I forget, I think she ran like 270 miles. Uh, and over the course of like three and a half days or something sick like that. Because you can't win until everybody else has quit. I think is how yeah. you do it. And I think the last like 50, yeah, the last 50 miles or so, it was just her and a dude. And it was just a, a death match. Her and his dude answering the call every hour on the hour until finally the dude the dude quit and Maggie won. Oh, man, that's crazy. At the end of November in 2019, so we're squeaking these chats in because we really considered about a year that we've been uh, since we started Adventure Audio, we hosted Eldon Nelson, who's also known online as the fat cyclist or fatty in a lot of the podcasts that he hosts, um, which is a misleading nickname uh, because he's a really, really accomplished athlete. He's a 23-time finisher of the Leadville 100 Mountain Bike Race. He's either he's either the, the he's he's either done the most Leadvilles or he's like tied for it or something like that. Um, it's an incredible. He yeah, he and his wife Lisa just. They get after it. They get after it. You know, they're, and, they're so and have normal lives too. You know, totally. Both yeah. people with they they have a family. They have careers. They've got kids mm-hmm. that they you know have raised into adults, and I'm sure they still help them and yeah. all that stuff. And um, Eldon is also the host of the Leadville 100 podcast, which that's right. perfect. He the perfect host for that, uh, for as well sure. as the Marginal Gains podcast. So we're going to give you a little bit of our chat with Eldon Nelson. 
Wow. So what is yeah. it about Leadville that's, that's captivated you to the degree that it has, that has you going back and back and back and, and have started a dedicated podcast to it? Yeah, um, that is a great question. And hmm. I think a, a lot of it has to do with the fact that it is uh in many ways it's like a tradition right it if you if you were to ask you could ask the same question about christmas right you know what is it about christmas that you like and it's like well anymore i like christmas because it's christmas it's 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 a thing where i do every year yeah. and it's and it feels like a, a tradition and uh and i have tons of memories tied into it right i I have and they, you know, I swear it's a, a ride on memory lane for me anymore. As you go and you're on a trip on the trail and you're like, oh, I remember when this happened. I remember when that happened. <laughs> you're like, you know, you're like an old man on the on a rocking chair telling anyone all these boring old stories. But I, I love that. But also, I like that it's a it's an amazing personal yardstick for me. And so a lot of these don't have anything to do with Leadville itself, but have to do with the fact that I've been doing it a long time. Um, and maybe it's kind of the same way that I love riding the, my hometown trails more than I love riding just about anywhere else. Because it's like, you know, I've I've done uh, the trails in Corner Canyon hundreds of times at this point, you know, because I can ride them from out the door. And it's not like I see or experience anything new while I'm doing it, but uh, the cumulative memory and joy, you know, it's just sort of like, you know, Hey, this is literally my happy place. This is literally home. And Leadville has kind of the same feel to as well. And plus I do love the town and I, I do love the intensity of the race and, uh, honestly, I kind of enjoy the fact that I know it so well that people do want to ask me questions about it. You know, it, it's fun to be the guy who knows something every once in a while. You're, you're totally you. that guy with that race. For you. <laughs> I guess, but I mean, it's, it, I, I kind of wanted to ask you guys about that. Just the name of your podcast is the you know, adventure audio. And I'm like, adventure is such a, different thing to different people right i i uh, you can kind of tell the theme for me is i love doing the stuff that i have done a lot you know that it is an experience that i that has brought me a lot of joy over many many years and you know every ride on a bike is kind of that but i don't do a lot of what i guess i think is kind of your focus right going out and doing new things doing adventures and I get freaked out every time I look at a map, right? I, I can't tell up from down on those things. So, I mean, what is someone who is not necessarily great at reading maps who, you know, GPS has seemed to stop working whenever I get near them. Uh, I mean, what, you know, what do people who are not necessarily great at the whole bike packing and, you know, all of that, that is kind of your focus. What do you do to start getting a taste of what you love about writing? Wow. That's a great question. Um, I think, you know, I think that it adventure means, like you said, a lot of things to a lot of people going back to Leadville every year. Isn't a lack of adventure at all because each its own adventure. Sure. And if, if I do my, my road loop on a sun, on a sunny 
for morning when when my kids are out of school and I've got more time in the morning and I go and ride, you know, 80 kilometers or something like that. I could do the same loop and it's a different quote unquote adventure every time, just like your your local trails around around Utah. So I think that, um, you know, the, the idea of adventure audio is to talk to people like you, to talk to trail runners, racers. Uh, bike packing for sure yeah uh, all that kind of that kind of thing i think what do you think ty elvin certainly i would certainly say learn to read a map i think it's uh invaluable um because you're you know you we have all these gadgets that tell us where we are and where we're going but yeah they don't always work so yeah I, you, know, uh, you can get yourself especially where you live you know if you get out on a big adventure and get a little bit lost you know you can be in trouble real fast. So learning to read the maps, I think are really important. So, yeah. There should be map reading classes. <laughs> I'm sure there's one. You're in a good spot for that. For that. I'm yeah, sure no that. kidding. Because yeah. you're dead it on right. Probably about, is. And I think you should try. You should, sounds like you enjoy adventures. So, I, you know, I'd recommend trying bikepacking. It's a ton of fun. A ton of fun. Uh, in December... So I guess about a year ago, we had Meg Fisher on the podcast, um, who is a Paralympic, Paralympic gold, silver, and bronze medalist, um, and uh, former former uh, coaching client of Tyler Hamilton Training, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, great gal. You know, amazing story. You know, she is so resilient, so so strong, both mentally and physically. It was a real honor to have Meg on our on our podcast. Yeah, it sure was. When I was 19, I was driving from Chicago to Missoula to sign a lease on my first apartment with my best friend. We both taught tennis in a suburb of Chicago, and we had a break in between our tennis sessions. We were going to quick pop out to Montana, sign a lease, drop off some of our stuff, go back, finish our teaching season, and then... um, return to Montana and continue on with um, our educations. I, I was thrilled. I was 19. You know, nothing really hurts when you're 19 and the world is open to you, every possibility. Um, I was incredibly excited. Um, in June 30th, 2002, Sarah and I were partway through on our drive to Missoula uh, in the middle of South Dakota on I-90. And our car rolled eight and a half times in the middle of the road. Uh, it was catastrophic. Uh, somehow it was a single car accident. It was just us. I, I don't even know how, partly because I don't remember. What they say is that we, they, meaning an observer, said that maybe we hit the rumble strip and we drifted just a bit. And then Sarah, as the driver, maybe overcorrected a bit. And then that started our car to tumble. And um, it just, the energy and the destruction was huge. Um, and additionally, the, the loss of life. I'm, uh, it was, Sarah died that day um, due to her injuries. Um, the initial people who, who did stop to try to take care of us thought we both were dead. A brave soul went in and pulled us out and other people called the ambulances and life flight was on the way very quickly. Um, But somehow somehow I survived. Um, My pilot, who 
was a Vietnam pilot. His name was Dave. He used to come up and sit with me in the hospital room when he wasn't out flying missions or trips. And he said that I, I, he didn't think I was going to make it. Um, my pupils were fixed and dilated. I relied on somebody else to breathe for me. I had evidence of a, I had a closed head injury. And it also ripped off my left foot. I don't know how. Somehow in the accident, it got caught and um, badly mangled. So that started about a month-long process in the hospital where I needed to spend time in a coma. Um, eventually woke up from that. Underwent reconstructive surgery to try to save as much of my leg as they could. That meant that they took muscle from my stomach and skin from my thigh to try to cover where my foot had been. From there, um, I was stable enough to be discharged. And then they flew me in a fixed wing life flight back to Chicago where my mom lived because I wasn't well enough to drive home or take a commercial flight home. I needed, I needed a lot of support still. Back in Chicago, I continued with therapy, had a little more surgery, started the process of getting fit with a prosthesis. Even when I was in the hospital, one of the first thoughts I remember when I opened my eyes and looked down and saw that my feet didn't match, I, kind of, I quickly went to tennis, you know, the weird things where your mind goes and just thought, you know, how am I going to play again? Wow. Yeah. When I was back in Chicago, uh, somebody, my mom's friend, somebody I'd played ten tennis with well as well, she was retired and had some time on her hands and she took me under her wing. She would come to my house, bring her office chair with wheels and a hopper of balls. We'd go out to the local tennis court, which was just a block from my house. And I would sit in an office chair and scoot around the court and she would give me lessons. And she would make sure, she would tell me that when you can stand again, when you can walk, your volley is going to be solid. And we would talk about the mechanics of forehands and backhands. And she kept, she really inspired me. All my friends had gone back to college and continued on with their lives. And mine hit a pause button for a while. I was really banged up. I, if anybody's had a traumatic brain injury, a concussion or something like that, you, you know how <laughs> discombobulating it can be. And like I, these injuries went so far beyond just your leg injury. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously, like, yes, you see that I use it now a prosthesis and yes you can see some of the evidences of old like scars and wounds and stuff like that but uh i have long hair and you can't see the brain surgery scars you can't see the dents in my skull um and yeah traumatic brain injuries and the invisible scars are often some of the harder ones so yeah um i spent about 11 months after my initial injury again i i it, played tennis on an office chair. I even taught. I got a job teaching tennis before I could even stand. And eventually I could stand and I could walk and then I could kind of sort of kind of run. It wasn't very pretty and it certainly hurt. Um, and then I went back to college. I missed one semester of school. And then I came back to college and I tried to resume my life. And it just was really stinking hard, really painful, actually. They had suggested, they being doctors, had suggested that I might have less pain and more functionality if I decided to go for a higher level amputation. 
So 11 months after my first injury, they amputated more of my leg. And that's pretty crazy to walk into a hospital and walk out with less than you started with. Yeah, I didn't know that part of the story. That is nuts to think about. It's still strange to me, I suppose, but it's just just my story, I guess, now. And it did. Did it work? I'd say it did. I, I, I sometimes wish I'd tried other solutions before then, but it, I can't spend time thinking about those things because it's just, it is what it is, right? I can't think, you know, what if the accident didn't happen? What if Sarah were still here? Or what if it had been me? And I, I wish it had been me. I wish she had lived and I died, you know? But it just, there, there's not a lot of use in spending time with those. I'm here now. Um, uh, I'd always watched. Well, actually, when I was in the hospital in 2002, I was laying in my hospital bed and the great pacifier of life, I guess, is television. I mean, I couldn't do anything. I couldn't sit up. I couldn't wheel myself anywhere. I, I couldn't. I could watch TV. And um, that's when I really got into the Tour de France. I, I couldn't watch a lot of other programs because they were too you know, emotional for me for some reason. Um but I could watch bike racing and thankfully that was on every day and for hours and analysis of the race and so on and so forth and all those things. Um, so I was laying in my hospital bed and I learned about um, Tyler Hamilton, um, which is really surreal to me. This is like my life now that I actually get to talk to him. Um, so, in December of 2019, we had Dean Carnassus on the podcast, who I've been a big fan of for a long time. Um, read his book, uh, Ultra Marathon, Ultra Marathon Man, Confessions of an All Night Runner. Um, <laughs> what a cool guy Dean Carnassus is, eh? Yeah, oh, yeah. I loved having him on. I loved his energy. And uh, man, he looks like he's like 25 years younger than he is. Yeah, he, it's yeah. absolutely absolutely unbelievable like so what a yeah. what a cool guy to follow right. along with in terms of like longevity yeah. and understanding yeah. physiology and what we're capable of yeah and i love the story of his 30th birthday it's yeah. unbelievable we're going to share all of that with you right now my story was um uh, a little bit atypical of, of runners or maybe not but i used to love to run when i was a kid i mean my earliest uh, childhood recollections are from running home from kindergarten and i ran competitively uh when i was a freshman in high school on the cross country team and we won the, the state championships and then i decided that running was boring you know i was uh 15 years old a teenager at the time and i got into surfing and everything else and uh stopped running altogether at age 15 and then I went through uh, college, and then I went through graduate school, and then I, I went through business school. And I had this really comfortable corporate job in, in San Francisco. Uh, you know, I had all the perks. I had stock options, you know, company car, uh, 401k matching, you know, healthcare, big fat paycheck, all, everything that was supposed to make a guy happy. And I was not all that fulfilled. I was kind of miserable being a business guy. I really didn't dig it that much. Uh, and then on the, the night of my 30th birthday, I was in a bar in San Francisco doing what uh, most of us do on our 30th birthday. Uh, you know, I was drinking with my buds. And uh, at midnight, I told them I was leaving. And they said, you know, what? Why hold it. Why are you leaving? It's midnight. It's your 30th birthday. Let's have another round of tequila to celebrate. <laughs> and I said, you know, instead, I'm going to celebrate by running 30 miles right now. 
and, and they looked at me and they said, <laughs> that's funny. You're not a runner. You're, you're drunk. And I said, yeah, I am drunk, but I'm still going to do it. And I, <laughs> I literally, I walked out of a bar in San Francisco, you know, hammered and, uh, <laughs> and decided I was going to run to a place called Half Moon Bay, which is 30 miles oh. uh, south of San Francisco. And I didn't even own running gear at the time. Um, I thankfully I had these like uh, these silk uh, boxer underwear on, and they were kind of comfortable. So I just took off my pants. You know, I was totally drunk and just started running off into the night. And uh, you know, uh, ten miles into it, I started sobering up, and I thought, well, "What the hell am I doing? You know, this is crazy." But I, I, it just something felt right. Like it was, you know, like two in the morning, and. You know, I just I felt free. I felt, you know, that kind of freedom that endurance sports and running brings to us. I, I felt that for the first time since I was, you know, 15 years old and and it was fulfilling and it, it gave me deeper meaning than my job in so many ways. And that night kind of changed the course of my life. Yeah, that's that's the craziest part of the story, right? Like it wasn't a one off. I mean, you never really you never really look back, although you transitioned over a period of time out of corporate life and into into becoming a well i guess what i would call a full-time yeah full-time and you know runner, i mean right? nowadays it's it's more commonplace you know with the gigging economy it's more commonplace for people to kind of you know set their own path but you know not to not to date myself but this is you know this is a couple of decades ago and it was <laughs> it was highly unusual you know there weren't many people making a, a living in endurance sports especially obscure endurance sports like ultra marathoning because as you know i mean even now there's there's not a lot of prize money in, in the sport so you know how do you sustain a, a career in it uh, how do you you know how do you pay the bills kind of thing um i had to figure out all that stuff on my own yeah like and compared to even today, I mean, compared to the Tour de France, it's still pretty. Yeah, I think that's fringe, part of the right? allure of ultra ultra marathoning is that um, it's still it's still kind of got this grassroots feel to it. I, you know, although um, you know the numbers are growing and some of the more popular races, you know, the odds of even getting in the lottery are absurd. But it still has this, you know, this this kind of homey feel to it, and it's still kind of a bunch of misfits, you know, showing up to do something that's a that's really kind of crazy. <laughs> Uh, so it's, 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 you know, it's not, it hasn't ever become really corporate or even the corporations that are in are kind of smaller corporations. There we go. Okay. Our last guest of 2019 and our frequent guest and our, your very good friend and now my good friend too, uh, Jim Capra was yeah, on the podcast. Capra. Yeah. yeah he's he's awesome he is uh just he's such a nice guy um and i'm just really really honored to be able to call him a friend now too jim's been on the podcast a bunch of times so we're going to clip together a bunch of the highlights um maybe some funny stuff and just some wisdom that he shared because he's a really really good endurance coach yeah, yeah thanks jim thanks so much So, you know, there wasn't one defining moment where, you know, I found cycling. Like I remember Davis Finney, I heard him say that he went to the North Boulder crit and he saw these guys racing and he said, I'm going to do that. There wasn't a defining moment, but I did get a bike for Christmas. Uh, I think I was six years old and it was so much fun. My dad and I went for a ride that day. It must have been a bike that was probably much too big for me because I had it for about four years. 
And I remember <laughs> on that, I remember on that first day, we had this great ride, and then we came to this, this major street crossing. So we wait for the light. Dad makes me walk the bike across the street. I get to the other side of the street, run the front wheel into the curb, and the handlebar hits me square in the eye, knocks me down, black eye. Oh, so the first, <laughs> first day on the bike ended up with a little, a little roughed up, which is, you know, kind of uh, how it goes sometimes. But uh, I always loved the bike. And I remember this isn't something that I advocate for, for kids to do. And I only recently told my parents about this. But when I was like in fourth grade, I used to say, yeah, I'm just going to be on summer break. Um, I'm heading over to a friend Jeff, Jeff's house around the block. We're going to go play. And I would like ride, ride, you know, a kid's beat up BMX bike to Boulder. And it, it was an all day thing. That was like the next town over. I didn't know that it was, you know, becoming the cycling capital of the world. I just knew that it was close to the mountains and my family and I would go hike there. And so like, yeah, I like to ride my bike there. And I was, I was totally unprepared for it, you know, doing stuff that we would just be irate if our clients did. So, you know, I'm nine years old. And at the time, the, the town that I grew up on was on the western suburb of, of Denver. And it was just dirt roads between uh, where I lived in Boulder. So I guess I was gravel grinding at an, at an early age. But I'd ride out there without a clue of how to fix a flat, nor did I even have anything to do that with if it happened. You know, I think, I think in those days, do you remember the uh, flat patch repair kits came in something about the size of a tackle box you know and they had yep. like giant pieces of sandpaper and you know epoxy and maybe even an acetylene torch i don't know but i hadn't i had none of that nor like a quarter for a phone call or food or water i did have a helmet remember that you did? but i would just ride up there and um dirt roads and you know it was just an adventure and we would explore and thinking back on it, I guess I would have crossed um, the route of what was a pretty famous stage in the course classic bike race called the uh, Morgul Bismarck. But anyhow, those were just, you know, fun adventures. And I guess I've just always loved the bike. And uh, that's kind of how it started. And then here I look back, you know, 38 years later than, than those first rides up to Boulder. And it's like, ah, I'm still doing it. Still love yeah. the bike, but I'm so lucky now because I've learned a little bit, gained a little experience. And, you know, now we get to help other people enjoy the bike and share that passion. Lisa Nelson. Uh, uh, what a inspiration she, she was to speak with, man. How yeah, many, um, how many Leadvilles did she do? Like, 15 I'm looking or that something? up right now. She, Fifteen-time finisher of the Leadville 100. Yeah. So just a few short of her husband, but not that many. Yeah. Uh, they they met through the bike, and then I became aware of I became aware of Lisa because of Eldon talking about her on various podcasts, and he referred to her as the Hammer. Um, yeah. So I kind of always like knew who she was, but then after we started this, like that summer. She, I became aware that she was attempting to do the lead man slash lead woman challenge, which is um, 
as as much oh, yeah. as much racing as you can do in Leadville. It is the hundred mile run. It's the hundred mile mountain bike. It's I think a fifty mile mountain bike. It's ten um, k. It's the marathon. It's all of this stuff rammed into one summer. I think it all happens in like a six or seven week span. Yeah, and right. um, that's right. We know. I guess we know like lots of not not lots of people, but some people do that. Travis Macy did that. Um, but you know, Lisa's a full time nurse too. And she somehow and made this all work and a mom and she just made this all work with a smile on her face and she's so cool. And so we invited her to come on the podcast and tell us about that. Again, this is like pre COVID, right? So it's like happy conversation, lighthearted. <laughs> and uh, I'm sure she's had a lot to do since then. And of course they, they weren't able to race in Leadville. Nobody was in 2020, but this is um, a little piece of our conversation with Lisa Nelson. And what I took away from her was if, uh, she can do it with her schedule. You can probably do it with yours. Absolutely. Um, but we were really, really intrigued by your, first of all, your decision to even attempt the lead woman fiasco. Uh, that's a <laughs> massive undertaking. And then also just how you stuck with it, stayed motivated, actually trained, finished it relatively injury free. It seems like uh, yeah. we're, we're interested in the whole story. So I think to begin with, can you just explain what exactly is the lead man slash lead woman challenge, how it sort of came to be, how many events are there? And correct me if I'm wrong, you actually did more than what was required in order to be considered a lead woman, right? That is correct. Yeah. Okay. So the lead man series is a bunch of races um, in Leadville, Colorado, um, culminating with um, the mountain bike ride, the 100-mile mountain bike race, followed by basically the 100-mile um, run the week later. So it starts out in June with a marathon, and then the first week in July, you can either do a 50-mile run um, or a 50-mile bike ride um, that, or bike race that's called the Silver Rush. Um, you can do both, but it's not required um, and become what they call the Silver King or Silver Queen. So I was there and I figured I may as well do that. So I did both both events there. And then the 1st of August, you do the 100-mile run. Uh, excuse me, the 100-mile mountain bike race. And then the Sunday following, you do a 10K. And then the following Saturday is the 100-mile run. And that culminates it, and you become a lead, a lead person. So yeah, kind of a big undertaking. Um, you wow. know, way back when I first did, uh, first started doing the mountain bike race, I'd heard about the run, and I actually am more of a runner before. I, well, I, I'm a runner um, when I met Eldon, and um, so that always was like, oh my gosh, someone can actually run 100 miles. That'd be really cool if I could do that. So doing the um, mountain bike race so many times, I always thought it would be really cool to stay and watch the run. And and then, of course, if you're going to do the run, you may as well do the Leadman series. So that kind of, that's been just kind of floating out there on the bucket list of mine for for many, many years. Um, I think in 2015, I did a 50-mile run, and that kind of, kind of solidified, well, heck, if I can do 50-mile run, maybe this is something I could possibly do in the future. And then my sweet little daughter, who's tw was 23, she decided she wanted to do it. And so she kind of took my glory. And in 2017, or eight, it was 18, 2018, a year before me, she attempted it. And she actually got all the way through um, to the run. And she just, she finished the run, but she just didn't make the cutoff. So 
<clears throat> she, she's technically not a lead woman, but in my eyes, she's even greater than a lead woman because she ran farther um, in time than the actual time requirement for the 100-mile run. So I'm totally impressed with her. But she, seeing her do it, seeing her train for it, really just kind of said, I ain't getting any older, so if I'm going to do this thing, I better do it now. So that that's really what kind of pushed me over the edge. And I went to Eldon and said, hey, this has always been a bucket list of mine. Would you support me? And he was, because we train. We train every weekend. Every night we train together on the, on the mountain bike. And uh, I said, you know, if I do this undertaking, I'm not going to be able to be your riding partner for the whole year. I mean, I'll do some rides with you, but in general, I'm going to be doing a lot of running. And he was totally cool with it, supported me the whole way, and uh, got me to there. So it was just as hard for him and hard for me because we just weren't uh, together as much as we usually are. So that yeah, is how I got to sure. there. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the whole the whole year was just kind of a um, series of I, I kind of broke it down back right really when Melissa finished the race and I thought I wanted to do it. So way back in August, I started planning. I started planning for it. Uh, I had some issues I had to overcome. I have really bad bunions. And so I had to figure out how I could do runs with um, having uh, bunions that really caused me great pain with <clears throat> blisters and such. So I went on YouTube, which is quite amazing. You can find an answer to any problem that you have on YouTube and, you uh, and found how to tape my feet tried a bunch of different shoes, figured out the best shoes for me. Um, and that all kind of, and read a ton of books um, to really prepare me for it. So I did that preseason, I'd say, um, before the turn of the year, uh, the, the year. So in January, I started the training plans and, and it was, I, I, I kind of placed an event. I had a 50K scheduled for March. I had a, a 100K scheduled for April. Figured if I could do those 50K and 100K by April, then I could kind of kind of reel it back in and then hit the marathon, the 50s. And then uh, everything kind of fell into place. I just, my big thing, my big worry was getting injured because I've had that problem when I first started running way back. Um, uh, my first marathon, actually, I got an overuse injury and was just heartbroken. And that's what pushed me into mountain biking. And I did my first Leadville while I was kind of recovering from a, a running injury. So that that was really on my forefront. So I I took my recovery um, all. I mean, I did a lot of yoga in there as well, which I think is the big thing with running. You kind of have to stretch out all your muscles, relax them, um, roll them out. I, I used a roller every night. Uh, um, big proponent of, uh, CBD, CBD, um, oils and such. And I use those every night too. Um, and I think that's kind of just really got, got me through it. So pretty, it, it is pretty amazing feat when you think about it. Cause I'm just an average person. Um, I have an average life. I work a full-time job. I have a quite large family that I have to plan bills for every day. I, have a husband, <laughs> all that stuff. And I, like I said, not, I wasn't getting any, any younger. So, um, it's really just about, I mean, I, and I'm pretty, pretty motivated and I have, I'm pretty stubborn. I wasn't going to give up. So yeah. Any, any specific Where does that motivation come from? Because it's, yeah. it's such a, well, motivation, I think is a great place to start. It's such a huge undertaking and it's really easy to say at 
at the end of as August wraps up to think, oh, I'll do that the following year. But to keep putting one foot in front of another, so to speak, for 12 straight months is I think it's pretty remarkable. And that's that's the part where you're not a regular person. <laughs> like, I think when you say that I'm just a regular person, you mean like physiologically, maybe you yes, are, but yes. you're, you're obviously not in terms of your ability to stay motivated. Because at no point in there can you give yourself a 45 or 60 day break. Like You need to be yeah. pretty after it. So where does that Where's that come from? Like, you know, I'm, I've been hit with what, a lot what, of challenges in my you, life on days. and, and I just, I feel like I, I am a motivated person. If there's an obstacle that needs to be overcome, I'm going to overcome it. And I'm very goal oriented, obviously. So I think that me setting forth my goals, um, you know, with those season races, the 50 K, the hundred K, you know, it was all like, I was just checking off a box on my way to the goal, to my, to my big end goal. So I think that's what it was. And, and, you know, and the reward of, of accomplishing the 50 K I'd only run, I think maybe two 50 Ks prior to this. So, um, you know, even, even the 50 K was a big deal to me to check that off and then to move on to the hundred K, which I'd never done before. So, um, so motivation is, is the goals, the small goals along the way that really kept me going. And, and I'm, you know, I, I love a goal. Like I said, that's why I think having the Leadville every year to motivate me, um, at the end of August, it gets me up in the morning to train. I mean, and I'm, like I said, a runner too. So I threw a, I throw in a couple of marathons in there as well. So just different goals, keep me going. So, and, and, and honestly, bottom line, it's kind of like my Prozac I, I, just to get out every day. <laughs> so it's nothing special. That's, that's honestly what it is. It's um, my motivation is to stay sane. So if I have a goal, at least I have a reason to get out every day besides, you know, like I said, keeps me sane. Oh yeah. Bonnie Ford. Yeah. That was really special to have her on. You know, she's uh, been a, a journalist for, I don't, I, I don't know how long, a long time. I think from, I think she started back in what Chicago and, you know, and then over the years got into sports and uh, yeah, she covered the Tour de France for a long time. Uh, and um, yeah, I, she interviewed me many times throughout my career. And, you know, whenever the subject of doping came up, you know, I had to unfortunately, you know, lie to her straight to her face. And, you know, it was nice to have her on the podcast and kind of talk to her about all that. And, you know, she's she's had a very, very cool and long career. And we're going to we're going to take out some some highlights of our conversation with her. But we were really, really honored to have her on. Yep. Had to meet would have been the postal training camp in 98 oh, in Ramona, right. California. I remember that. OK. So. The recollection around Christian is correct. Christian is from Lamont, Illinois, a Chicago suburb. And at some point, and I don't remember how this happened, we learned that Christian had signed with Postal. And we knew that Lance Armstrong was coming back with Postal from his uh, cancer, you know, his year that he took away from the sport to recover. And that was an interesting story on its face. Like it's hard to put ourselves back in that mindset. Lance Armstrong was not a household name then, but 
for people who followed endurance sport, that was just like, okay, what's going to happen? Is this guy really going to be able to compete at the elite level again? And it's an American team. And so it was an intriguing story. And with the local angle for, for us at the Chicago Tribune, it was not a hard sell to my editor. Says, hey, let me go out to this training camp and see what's happening. So I did. And Tyler might remember that the hotel or motel where the team was housed. Next to the Sizzler? The Sizzler, Sizzler, exactly. So (laughs) it was the Ramona Inn. And I have a clear recollection that my room cost like 60 bucks a night. And it had brown shag carpeting. And this, the, what, remind me of the place, uh, Sizzler, right? Sizzler yeah. next door was where the team had their training table. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. The good old days, Bonnie. So early <laughs> times, early stages for sure. Hey, yeah. Hey, Bonnie, did you cover that tour, the 98 tour? Was that your first one or was it 99? I did not cover the 98 tour. I was in France that summer. Uh, I was covering the 98 World Cup, Soccer World Cup, which was in France. But obviously, because I was in France, uh, it was a very interesting summer to be reading the French press. And I, I followed the tour through the newspapers and all of the events. And I remember seeing, you know, Bobby Julik landing on the podium and, but I was not that one visit to Ramona had really been my only contact with the sport in, in that period of time. So little did I know, you know what was yeah. going to come next. For right. sure. And, and that was the, for people listening, that was the year of Festina, right? That's right. Yes. Right. So, so Marco, that broke on Marco the Pantani eve of the tour, tour, and he did. And um, it was sort of, you know, again, it's hard for me to reconstruct because I was also on another assignment at that time. But I just remember kind of this impression of chaos and, <laughs> oh, my God, and police raids and people yeah. getting arrested and and then seeing this kind of bike race limp to the finish. Exactly. Yeah, I was telling Pete, I, you know, I was in that tour and it was it was chaos. It was chaos. You know, you never knew what was going to happen. There were protests all the time. You know, one one day you're riding next to a guy. Next day you're watching him on television, you know, being interviewed while he's in jail, handcuffed and he's crying. Uh, yeah, every day was different. It was uh, it was uh, a tour like no other, really. And no one, no, no one really knew what was going to happen. And then teams randomly just pulling out of the tour and going home. It was crazy. I think there were only like 98 finishers that year out of 200. That sounds right. Yeah, yeah. But um, so that was absolutely bit- crazy. So you have, so now you have a peripheral view of all this stuff happening, and you go back the following year. There's the cancer comeback, and what what appears to be maybe a pretty strong American team, and. You know, a lot of optimism. Like we, Tyler and I were trying to recall what the uh, what the organizers called that tour, but they had a little tagline on on it, which was you know, optimistic. Um, it was like the tour of renewal or or something along those lines. I don't know if you remember what it was, Bonnie, but 
Okay, so I'm going to have to correct the timeline again. Um, and don't expect oh, okay. you guys to have known this, but I that following summer, I was assigned to the Women's Soccer World Cup, which was in the United States. And so I was, that was a huge story. You may remember um, the Mia Hamm team and the sold out stadiums, and it was really a thing. And I was quite busy with that, keeping one eye on the race. And when it became clear that Postal and Lance were going to win, and Christian was on that team, of course, too. My editors approached me and said, you, "Do you want to go?" And frankly, I was pretty beat from a month of running all over the country covering soccer. And I said, "Why don't you send someone else for the last few days?" And so Phil Hirsch actually went over and covered uh, the finish of that race for us for the Tribune. They did call it the Tour of Redemption. Oh, Redemption. That's it. Redemption. And okay. I I was um, Redemption. I did do one story during that tour from the United States because I already had kind of gotten into the realm of covering doping cases. And when the famous or infamous uh, Cordo, uh, I'm sorry, the the cortisone cream bust so-called uh yeah. with lance when that happened i was asked to uh, help out with a news story um obviously the events as they were reported are not the events we later found out to be true but i was involved in covering that just kind of helping out with the news report on that that was it um but what that tour did in terms of american media was it ensured that papers like the Chicago Tribune were going to send people to the tour the following year in 2000. So I thought it, it was really interesting to me to hear you say that when you were answering a question about when your awareness of doping occurring really started to, sh you know, it, it gradually slid from being, you know, you heard some rumors and didn't pay too much attention to it to going, you know, eventually going completely the other way to, to believing that, okay, there's just there's too much here to not believe it anymore which is a really similar experience to what i think fans had right where we right there, there was whispers and we were like ah you know uh and but it's slowly built and built and built and to, you know for, for me and, and my friends and a lot of people who followed those tours it was it was when you started to hear about this um like some some guys being basically subpoenaed to it's like you got to tell the truth or or you could go to jail and then and then people started getting slowly ticked off the list to the point where you just had to say, it doesn't matter who's confessing what now this obviously happened. Right. And you seem to have a similar arc to that realization. Um, that describes it to an extent. I would say that also as a sports writer, there's statistics, there's analytics. And so when, when you looked at slowly over those years, as more and more top riders either got busted or confessed or, you know, were otherwise linked to doping. And you began to understand the statistical improbability that um, any one guy could be dominant and be clean. So right. it was, it was just math, you know, in the end. That, yeah, like you can't have this many top finishers and all these grand tours be getting caught. 
and uh, and have the other ones be clean. It just didn't make sense, right? It so and again, and that was an evolution too, because initially, as that evidence began to build, you still you and I'm using you in a in a large sense. There was no proof. Okay, so um, it was still a supposition. And there was a resistance to wanting to believe that, you know, that uh, the deception had been that great. But again, came to a conclusion long before you could report what you thought. Uh, Still pre-COVID, we had Chris Thornham from Flow Cycling and the Faster podcast on. And I became aware of that podcast which was had a really cool format where they sort of assigned that they would give you some advice on what you could do with your bike, or your equipment, or your aero position or whatever. And they would sort of assign a Watts value uh, to it. So they like a little bit of a gimmick, but it was pretty cool. And I got kind of got into it. Um, Chris is a mechanical engineer and the co-founder of flow cycling, which is a wheel company, which he founded with his twin brother. And um, to me, there was two parts of this conversation that really jumped out. One of them is the entrepreneurial journey. Because he tells us a crazy story about how like they, they racked up all these orders, but then they weren't able to fill them and they needed to get like a loan from their dad. Yeah, they were, yeah, they were right on the brink. and uh, Right on know, the brink. Yeah. And, you know, luckily he's got some su- supportive family and, uh, and he just stayed, you know, true to his mission and didn't give up, you know. Yeah, they totally pull but around. He and his brother, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's a great entrepreneurial story. And then the great other part that, that I think was really cool that we're going to share with everybody is Chris really breaks down from a very scientific perspective, um, tire size, wheel size, oh, yeah, um, tire conversation pressure. around PSI, right? Yeah. Yeah. I was yeah. totally amazed. I was like, I'm out in the dark here. You know, I totally. should have known some of those things. But yeah, le- you know, we're always learning, right? Wow. Really who, interesting. When I first knew? got my road bike, I mean, I had 23s. And I knew people who were riding like 19s and at yeah. like 110 psi, and oh, everything that, we thought was yeah, wrong. If not and more, was, yeah, totally. Yeah, totally. it's so uncomfortable, yeah. and for no reason. Yeah. Yeah. And if you don't believe in that, then you have to listen to Chris break it down here because it's the truth. Yeah. <laughs> um, hey, so can you tell us about your wheel company? Yeah, man. We how, uh, how you started, and you know. Sure. Because what a scary thing to jump into, man, like a competitive space. It's you got to How did you even start understanding all the technical side of stuff like a crazy endeavor? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a story for sure. So I. uh, My brother and I are both mechanical engineers by trade. Um, So the the technical side was never a, a, a fear, I guess. It was just something to figure out. And I was training and racing for triathlons at the time and my brother my brother's really never done endurance sports he's never been a cyclist he's never really done that but he's always really liked business and we were both working for uh an engineering company at the time we had tried to start another business that was a was a failure on paper but an incredible learning experience and um i had just bought race wheels for triathlon and i spent the there, there, at the time, there was the Zips and the Heads, right, who co-owned a patent, and they charged between two and $3,000 for a wheel set. And wow. then you had a couple of consumer direct companies who were using open molds. So all of their technology was based on 
20 year old designs, like the old D notch stuff that was horrible to handle in crosswinds. And I think William cycling was kind of the main player at the time in that space. And then there was really nothing in the middle because of that patent. So I ended up buying um, head jet wheels. And when I got them, I was just shocked that I had spent that much on what was in the box. I just, I, in my mind, I thought there is no possible way that this costs that much. Like, it's just, it's impossible. I mean, the, the fairing on the head jets is like paper thin, right? I'm sure you guys have seen one or felt one, but it's, so anyway, I took them home and I showed my brother and I said, Hey, um, what do you think these cost? And he said, I don't know, 500 bucks. And I said, well, quadruple that. And he, he, his jaw dropped. And I said, you know, we're, we're trying to get into something else, another business. And I said, I, I think we could start a business. What if we just made something very similar, but more affordable? And he said, okay, let's start to figure it out. And then he had no technical experience at all in cycling. He didn't ride. He didn't know anything about, but I knew all the parts and components. So it was easy for me to teach that to him. And our original idea was that we, instead of using carbon fiber, we assumed that carbon fiber was what was expensive, that we were going to use like a, a high quality plastic that looked like carbon fiber. And that would be how we would save the cost. What we found out is that plastic was actually more expensive than carbon fiber because the manufacturing industry was set up to use or to, to manufacture carbon fiber. And they weren't set up to manufacture the plastics in the way that we wanted to use them. So in right. order to kind of create the system for creating a plastic wheel, it was going to cost us a lot more money to create that system than to just use the existing technology that existed for developing carbon fiber wheels. So um, we got, we, you know, we did a ton of research. And what we found out is that the patent that Zip and Head co-owned was expiring I think it was in a couple months. Oh, wow. So oh, crazy said, timing. Yeah, there's an opportunity here. And what the opportunity is, is if we can be the first company to now utilize this available technology because the patent is expired. So we take the, the highest technology that's available and we don't go through the standard distribution model like Zip and Head do. And, and the reason that Zip and Head are so expensive and Envy now or, or specialized is because their products go through the standard distribution model, right? They go from a factory to the company owner, to a distributor, to a retail shop, and then to the end user. And every time that product is changing hands, the price is getting marked up 30, 40, 50%, right? So a wheel that costs, the, the standard saying in the cycling industry is if you're paying five dollars it costs a dollar to make it so it's a typical five times markup if you're buying it at a bike shop so what we said was okay now that this technology is available let's let's be the first company to make a, a toroidal shape which is what they had the patent on but let's combine that with the direct-to-consumer model so we'll give all the technical benefits but we'll do it at a fraction of the price and we were able to do that um for nine hundred dollars we could wow. sell a set of wheels for nine hundred dollars and it was by far the cheapest price in the industry and we had arguably the same technology as all of the other players so the guys who were doing the direct-to-consumer with the old technology 
were now kind of outdated because we had the same price or better, but a better technology. And it was one of those stories that was kind of too good to be true that actually came to be true. And it just, it took off. And we, we started our first company by keeping everything secret. And we learned that that wasn't such a good idea. And on this company, we literally started it in our garage and we told the story. We told all the successes we had. We told all the failures we had. We had a a factory um, basically lead us on for a year and screw us over and it pushed us back a year. But we were just, we told the story of starting a business in your garage in America and people totally fell in love with it. And through that process, we had gained an email list of about 4,000 people. And we met a guy right before we launched and he kind of taught us this strategy for utilizing that many people and like a uh, it's called like a launch strategy but basically with that many people on an email list what can you do to increase the chances of sales and we studied that very very intently and we launched and uh within the first couple seconds of our business going live our server crashed oh got it back up and then we sold 800 cycling wheels in the first 45 minutes get out of here yeah, yeah, and yeah, it was crazy. We were doing up to 60 transactions per minute, and we basically were out of the red within the first 45 minutes of starting a business. You must so, have been freaking out. Oh, we, oh. I mean, we were losing it, right? Like, and, and it was like the, the celebration and like the elation of what we had just done and the fact that we had worked so hard and for so many years and failed in the past, and it was like, wow, this actually worked. And then what happened was um, we had our payment processor was PayPal. And we had multiple meetings with PayPal before this initial launch, telling them that what we were going to do was a pre-order. And because we didn't have enough money to place the minimum order quantity with the factory, we needed to generate enough money to place that order. So this is before the days of Kickstarter, when you could go on and kind of promote your idea. And we just basically, without even knowing what Kickstarter was going to become, we created our own Kickstarter with our email list of 4,000 people. And what we said was, yeah, if you place an order now, depending on where you come in in the queue, you'll get your product in 60 days or 90 days or 120 days based on our manufacturing schedule. And so we told PayPal this is what we were doing. Anyway, because we had done such a high volume of sales in such a short period of time, um, we got a call from the PayPal fraud department the next day. And we had moved a significant amount of money from our PayPal account to our bank account so that we could place the order for the 800 wheels that we had just sold. And the lady on the phone said to me, where did the money go? And I said... (laughs) It went to my bank account and she was like, well, it's not your money. And I said, I, what do you mean? It's not my money. I said, I just started a business and I sold a bunch of products. And she said, well, have you shipped the products? And I said, no, we had about a dozen meetings with you guys to explain this process and what we were going to do. And she said, listen, PayPal is not a bank. This is a a holding institution. So PayPal is kind of like escrow, right? It's like eBay. If there's a dispute on eBay, it kind of PayPal really got its legs in eBay. So they're basically like escrow. So someone buys something and until the, the customer delivers, 
they won't release the funds. But they failed to tell us this, right? So we had a huge amount of money that was going to place the order. And the guy, the, the lady on the phone said, if you don't put the money back today, I will reverse all of your charges and you will have no sales. Oh, my God. So we were like, okay. So we moved all the money back. Now, we then have all these people products, but we had no money to pay for it. So you went from your first day, like, on top of the world, because you just sold 800 wheels, to yeah. the next day being down in the dumps. Because Yeah, no, dumps. like, bankrupt yeah. broke. They're, hold, like, they're holding our money. We can't use it. But we just generated this crazy amount of money. And I'm like, okay, well, what do we do? So my brother and I went to every bank, every, everything we could think of to get a loan. And we would go to the banks and be like, look, you see this pile of money? It's ours. We just have to ship. But nobody would touch us or give us a loan because we had no history. Oh, man. So I, we hadn't told our parents, and I didn't tell my dad. And I was just like, well, we'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. And like two weeks go by, and we don't know what we're going to do. So I, I end up talking to my dad, and I was and my parents, like, I did not come from money. My parents don't have, like, we, my dad worked, a, you know, a, a great job, but we just, we just were very middle class. We got by, there were no, I paid for my own college because I didn't want my parents to go in debt. And that was it's just what we did. Right. We worked for everything we got. And I remember calling my dad and I said, I think we're done. And he's like, what do you mean you're done? And he said, you just sold all of this stuff. And I, and I told him the story and he said, Oh man. He said, well, how much money do you need? Like what's the, the, the final dollar that you need to just make this work? And I said, I'll find out. So I, I found out and I told him, he said, I'll call you right back. So he calls me back and they had, they had just built a house and they had a line of credit for their house and they had what we needed plus 100 more dollars. <laughs> and this is a, this is a large sum of money. Okay. And, and for a guy who's already in debt from starting this company and in college debt still, cause we were young when we started this and I just said to my dad, I said, dad, I, I, it's not even your money. Like, I can't guarantee I'm going to pay you back. I can't guarantee this is going to work. And I don't want you to be in the worst financial situation of your life if this doesn't work out. And I'll, I'll never forget this. He just said to me, he says, listen, you're halfway across the English Channel. He says, you can keep swimming, you can drown, or you can go back. And he said, keep swimming. Take the damn oh. <laughs> And I, I was like, okay. So... They gave it to us and uh, we, we placed the order. And, you know, within that first year, uh, we had so many issues. There was a port strike in Long Beach, which held up our orders. A typhoon hit our factory. We got involved in a lawsuit that was like not even close to our fault, but we had finally profited. The lawsuit drained our bank accounts again. We had a we were working with a, a, anyway, I can't go into details, but anyway, we got into a lawsuit that drained our bank account again. And um, there were a lot of sleepless nights and trying to figure it out. But long story short, we, uh, we made it and uh, it came through and we, uh, we ended up, my parents wanted to get a, a retirement place in Florida, a small little, what people do in my my parents' ages, they go down to Florida and they buy these little trailer homes. They basically turn into really nice little beach cottages yeah. and they couldn't afford it. And that was kind of their dream. And they're not overly expensive, but 
a couple, I think it was a Christmas after they had saved us, we, uh, we gave them a significant down payment on one of those and they were able to afford it. So now they have a, a spot in Florida and uh, our lives are on a very different trajectory than they would have been had they not had that money. So what what a, I think weight feels good, right? It's the same thing as high tire pressure. A lot of people have high tire pressure yeah. and the vibrations. It, it just feels faster. It's like if you drive down the car or down the road at 100 miles an hour in a old Kia Sophia, like you feel like you're going to, it's so fast, right? Because right. the car could go, could blow up in any minute. But if you do the same thing in an Audi, you don't even know you're going 100 miles an hour. And plush tires, um, actually, like the, the lower pressures are more efficient. And the Audi gets to 100 miles an hour very easily because it's so efficient. And there's a term that people use called impedance, but basically the high pressures are actually less efficient and slowing you down, even though people think the opposite because of what they feel. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Very yeah. interesting. Yeah. Especially like when I first got my first road bike, it was all about, you know, 23 millimeter tires at like 110 PSI. Oh, yeah. And that was like the line of thinking. And that's really getting taken apart now, right? Oh, yeah. And I like, I don't ever go above 75, 80 now on pressure. And that's with, really? an, that's with an older tire. That's with ah. a, um, like a, a 20. I'm still on a 23. I'm actually building a new bike right now because the bike I had wouldn't take anything wider than 23s. Right. So most guys, I mean, go on your, your local group ride now with the, the faster riders and everyone's riding 28s you know bigger tires 28s 30s 32s and i don't know how much riding you guys are doing right now but the the new bike i'll build we always have i would say 28s or 32s on it you can just run lower pressures you can get down into 50s 60s with those wow um, go would you even lift. race with those tires absolutely yeah i mean you would a I? lot of yeah i mean and the rolling resistance numbers are lower the bigger the tires the rolling resistance numbers are lower and wow there's there's two main things that contribute to your speed with with wheel or tires i guess it's it's how aerodynamic they are yeah and then what your rolling resistance is and we did a i think we did what's rumored to be the largest tire study at a2 and there's a there's a huge difference between the worst aerodynamic tires and the best and i mean watts and watts of, of savings and then you, so you can't just look at that. You also have to look at how efficient the tire is at rolling. So if you have a really aerodynamic tire, um, a good example of this would be the gator skins. So gator skins are actually really pretty aero, but they roll like a brick, right? So oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you're, you're, you're gaining the aero, but you're losing so much in the, the rolling resistance that it defeats the purpose. But when you find a good all-around tire, like a, a GP5000, like those or the 4000s, what everyone rode, they're very aero, but they also have a really good rolling resistance. And then if you add on top of that the, the flat resistance that they provide, it's really kind of the best training, racing, do-it-all tire you can. And I guess you could find a slightly faster tire, but a lot of times you're giving something up like flat resistance and then if you're in a race and you flat the day is over anyway if you're at the front so sure yeah celine yeager is bicycling magazine's fit chick and uh she was a partner in a whole bunch of racing uh with rebecca rush 
yeah. who is famous for a whole bunch of reasons. And I've been reading Celine's stuff in Bicycling Magazine for a long time. She's written a bunch of books. She had just written the book Gravel and it had just come out when we talked to her. But, um, and another person that I've listened to on podcasts for like, you know, when you listen to somebody enough on podcasts, you feel like, you know, them Celine is one of those people to me. And, uh, but just, there's no challenge too big for her. She's now hosting a new podcast about, um, menopausal athletes and how women can keep that going. Cause that's her passion. That's the, her, her station in life right now. And, and she's doing that. And that's really, really cool to see her branch out and do that. Um, but Celine is really, really cool. And um, yeah, super down to earth. You know, so it's just, yeah, it's just a fun conversation. Like we got to get on her again for sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah completely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, and big in the gravel scene now, yeah. she tells us a great story about Florida and racing down there. This is right before COVID. Oh, yeah. This is February. Right. Yeah. Uh, so still blissfully ignorant. Um, I believe I was in Hawaii when we recorded this. Um, but we're going to share with you the best of our chat with Celine Yeager. There's road pro there now and stuff. But, you yeah. know, gravel still feels like, even though it's kind of blown up, it still feels kind of like mountain biking was in like, 97 98 like it still feels like there's so much more to go i would agree with that i think the wave has really just um started you know it started like building up and now it's just but i don't think we're i think it's going to be traveling at this at this rate for a little bit yet i mean people are just still coming into it there's a lot of new people still discovering it and it's you know it's definitely starting to go through some growing pains already you know as people are just i i always liken it to like you know the the purists who love that band before everyone discovered their band and now they're like oh everybody likes my band and it's not as cool anymore and how can i get all these people out of here but um you know the scene is still fun like the i the people who are grouchy about it i'm just like go to the events the events are still fun Uh, yeah it's it's still got the same spirit to it and there'll be more races Sure. How do you, which is which is great, right? Because events will blow up, which is super fun. It becomes more inclusive in some ways that way. But how do you think, for somebody so involved in it and writing books about it and stuff, how do you think that gravel can hold that identity without becoming, um, I don't want to say douchey, but you know, <laughs> like just more. It can. It sometimes the fun can get taken out of it, but when it grows too much, but you don't want to hide it from people what do you think right this is um you know i think that's i think that will just take care of itself quite honestly i think that um you know because people tried that with dirty cans or there was that guy that came and he had like he had a van following him and was trying to get feeds from the van and the, and the community shut that down pretty quickly like like that's not okay <laughs> you know like like don't do that um so I, th- I think that it's self, I honestly think it's self-polices pretty well. I think that it is going to change. Everything changes. And you will have events like Steamboat Gravel is very much, it's, it feels like a, a pretty serious road race, honestly. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's pretty hot. It's pretty professional. It's pretty tight. It's still, it's still a lot of fun. You know, there's still a party at the end and everyone does the same course. But it's, it's a different vibe from, you know, other smaller grass more grass rooty events and i i think that you just want to find what there's so many now just just find the the vibe that works for you 
you know, you're, how do you, how do you get started in writing? Like you've written what, two dozen, almost two dozen, or been involved with two, two dozen different I'm books. more than that at this point. I <laughs> make a, like almost Four. three dozen at this point. Really? Yeah, no, I was a writer before I was anything else. I, uh, I always, and I don't know, I didn't, I didn't really go to school for writing. It's funny. I, when I was in high school, all my teachers would, would tell me that I should be a writer. And I was like, oh, okay, you know, whatever. And I didn't really know what I wanted to be. Um, so I went to school. I thought I'd go pre-med, and that seemed like an awful lot of school once I got to school. <laughs> so I was like, maybe I won't be pre-med. And I went in, and I got an anatomy physiology concentration with, like, a communications degree. I, it, it was a very hodgepodgey thing that I put together for myself. But it's funny because it actually ended up being what I do because I got out of school and I was a medical writer uh, in Philadelphia, which 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 oh, was terrible. Know you know, yeah, yeah. I wow. I wrote for exciting magazines like Infectious Diseases in Children and uh, yeah, Radiology Today. <laughs> and I, it was fine, but I, I, I really wanted to get into consumer health and I kept knocking on the door at Rodale, which did men's health and prevention and women's health and bicycling and runner's world. It's like, if only I could get into there. And I kept sending them resumes and they kept sending me very nice rejection letters. And at some point uh, they, they hired a headhunter to go through the resumes during this big hiring phase they had. And they called me and they, the, it's funny, the, the test was to write a chapter on dental floss for, for their book. So you had to be creative and I got, yeah, I got the job and I just started, it all came together. Look, if she I start, can make dental floss yeah. exciting, then she's the winner. That was the point, you know, that was, that was the point. And it was, it was a really, that was what, that changed my whole entire life. That job, getting employed by Rodale and it was with their book division at the time, just set my whole course because I met everybody at Bicycling. And at the time, I was just riding this hybrid. I like I was that geeky girl that just always liked to ride my bike. I didn't know. I never knew anything about anything. I didn't know the Tour de France existed. I didn't know people raced bikes. I lived in you know a small coal town where people wrestled, played field hockey, or played football. You know, I didn't know. Right. I didn't know anything. I just rode my bike because I liked to ride, and I used to want to see how far I would go on it. And so when I started at Rodale and the bicycling people were like, oh, you should come out. And I was like, well, okay. And then they were like, well, you should like get a real bike. And I'm like, I have a real bike. They're like, mm, well, maybe you should try one of these. So they got me on a road bike and they're like, maybe you want some padded shorts. And I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. Like, you know, or clip, you know, shoes that you clip in. I like, they're like, yeah, maybe you should race this thing. I, I just had no idea. And they kept sort of like helping me along and I, entered a race and won the race and started mountain bike racing. And uh, yeah, it, it all just, I, I feel very fortunate. It all went, it all went from there. You know, it's not been, it's not been without its bumps and stuff, but I feel, I feel fortunate every single day that I found my path and I found my people like every single day. I feel incredibly lucky. I did, never thought when I got on this road that I'd still be on this road. And it's, it's pretty cool that I am. Thanks again, everybody, for listening. Uh, once again, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year from our families to yours. And um, 
Thank you again for tuning in. This is just part one. We're going to bring you a bunch more highlights early next week. We hope you all have a great holiday.